together in Psalm 14. Uh, and it's kind of, a, it's a theme about kind of the tragedy that is foolishness, because foolishness ultimately uh, is the estrangement, it causes the estrangement of intimacy that we could have with God. There can be no relationship with God if the theme of our life, if the trajectory of our life is unchanged from the foolishness that we're born into. Uh, and I started thinking about sort of reflecting on life, and it got me thinking, I was watching a show recently, and uh, during the show they had a funeral for one of the main character's parents. And this got me thinking about the way that uh, TV and movies show funerals. They're very, they're very extreme, right? The way that you see a funeral portrayed in, in a movie or in television is either, uh, is either like a giant celebration where the person was such a joy for everyone who knew them that they cry tears of sadness, grief, but also joy, and there's all the food, and everyone gathers around, and there's hugs, and it's this beautiful scene, which is rarely shown in movies, because oftentimes the movies want to show us a really cold, dark, cynical experience, where the person wasn't beloved, the person didn't have meaningful relationships. In the show I was watching, this person had zero meaningful relationships, the people who showed up at the funeral did so out of obligation and all they wanted to know about is where's the will? That's what they wanted to know about. And the reason that these types of scenes and movies and shows resonate with us is because we really look at sort of the, the funeral as a, a good picture of how well you lived your life. And that's what these media outlets are trying to help us think through is if you live a life of meaningful relationship and connection and intimacy, when you die, people will be sad and happy to have known you. And that's what you want, is to have that be the legacy that you leave. And so seeing someone else's funeral, we're like, okay, well, it's not my funeral, so I still have time to try and make that the legacy that I leave behind. In the same way, those negative funeral pictures for us remind us, like, ooh, that is not the legacy that I want to leave behind. And the reason that these things resonate with us is because you and I, we long instinctively to have connection, to have relationship, to have intimacy, and to know that it was real. And we were designed for this. That's why we long for it. We long to live lives that are connected and that experience meaningful intimacy. And Psalm 14 is another psalm that's going to call out foolishness. It's been only a couple psalms since we already talked about the foolishness of saying there is no God. But it shows up again here in Psalm 14 when the foolishness of living like there is no God. And there's something unique about this psalm that David focuses on that's different from the previous psalms. He actually focuses on the tragic result of foolishness, and that is no intimacy with God. That is the tragedy of foolishness, is you have no intimacy with God, which is what you were designed for, created for. And so what I want us to do, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read our text, uh, and then we're going to talk about it for a handful of minutes. Think about foolishness and think about what we can learn from it. So this is Psalm 14. You can follow along in your copy of God's Word, or you can uh, look on your worship folder there, or grab the Bible tucked in the pew in front of you. Here's what David writes. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there's any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as the generation of the righteous? You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. 
So here we have David addressing and calling out foolishness, but also offering hope. That's what we see here in this psalm. And what I want us to do is spend some time this morning talking about the tragic story of foolishness and owning the fact that that's our story too, unless we have the hope of the gospel. We'll talk about the hope of the gospel, and then I also want us to see what we can learn about actually living with that kind of hope, living an anti-foolish life, what that can look like for us. So first, let's talk about our tragic story, a life devoid of intimacy with God. If we dig into this psalm, we can see David sharing details about what it looks like to have a foolish life. In verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, they're corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there's none who does good. Living like there is no God or believing that there is no God. Functionally, they actually lead to the same outcome, and that's a foolish life. And the way that you know it is that you have uh, the evidence of corruption and abominable deeds in your story. These are things that continue to reappear in your story. These are themes of a, of a life, a life of a fool. In verse 3, David says, <clears throat> excuse me, they've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. So there, you're, you'll find a foolish life is a life that's consistently turning away from what is best, from what actually leads you to flourish, from what actually leads you to true joy. And you actually start finding other people who can confirm to you that what you're doing makes a lot of sense because you don't want to have to confront it. And so a foolish life is not a life de devoid of community, it's just devoid of good community. You're surrounded by people who will give you an attaboy to the things that lead to corruption and abominable deeds. And then in verses 5 and 6, we see David laid out this way. Those who are living a foolish life, whether they are willing to acknowledge it or not, feel terror. There's an underlying fear there. Because we know, because God has written on our hearts, what is and isn't true, good, pure, joy-inducing life and life choices. And so when there is no alignment, we will feel that terror because we know that we are not counted in that moment among the generation of the righteous. And there's also, so there's a terror that comes from it, verse 5, but there's also, verse 6, a shame that we want others to experience. If you want others to experience shame, that's a callousness. You'll see a callousness in yourself. And you'll want, as it says in verse 4, you want to eat people like bread. That's another way of saying that you're going to want to oppress other people. You're going to want to leverage other people. It's selfishness. A foolish life is, is the th theme of a foolish life is just selfish self-interest that shows up in ways that we try to justify, that we try to rationalize, but can only be described as corruption and abomination. We hate those words. We don't like those words which is why we very rarely think that those are things that we're struggling with. Like, I, you know, I, I've got my faults, I've got my flaws, I have my struggles, but I don't want to call those abominations. I don't want to call that corruption. Like, that, those are words reserved for somebody else or something else. We try to keep those words at, at arm's length. And when we do so, we do it to our own detriment because those are actually kind of what, what might be called, like, kind of red flags for us. Like, hey, there's some foolishness going on in us. And foolishness always results in estrangement from God. So what does this sound like? Well, it sounds like enslavement to sin. That's what it sounds like. But when you're enslaved to sin, you very rarely know that you're enslaved to sin. Most people, including myself, when you find yourself in a cycle that is actually best described as enslavement to sin, you feel like you're in control. And that what you're doing is actually your choice. And that you can choose not to, but you just don't. 
But on some level, you're giving that freedom away. You're giving that choice away the further you go down into that cycle, which is why foolishness very rarely looks like foolishness to the fool. If it did, we'd want to jump out of it. So we want to own the fact that if we're in this cycle, we probably don't know it. And we can see what's missing from the life of a fool. Verse 2, what is the fool missing? God looks down and he looks to see if there's anyone who understands, anyone who seeks after God. A fool does not understand the world the way that it really is and is not seeking after God. Those things do not exist in a cycle of foolishness. Now, those who, if we're struggling with foolishness, we, we think we understand. We think we know how the world works. We think we know how our finances should run. We think we know what our children need. We think we know what's best for our marriage. We think we know what we're entitled to because of all the pressures that we feel. We think we know a lot. We feel like we understand a lot, but we don't. Because true understanding is always going to lead us to a place where we seek after the Lord. So if what I am doing does not result in actually seeking after the Lord and wanting to know what he loves and what he's for, then what I'm doing is for myself. And that's the crux of foolishness. And we also see in verse 4 that there's no knowledge, there's no calling on the Lord, which is related to understanding and seeking after God. You know, we may very well claim to have knowledge, but true knowledge will always lead us to understand what we don't know. True knowledge will always lead us to the end of ourselves, so we have to call out. Now, you and I are, are hardwired so that we know when, we, when we've reached the end of ourselves. but the question becomes, like, what do we do when we reach the end of ourselves? Do we dig deeper into ourselves? Do we call to ourselves to man up and to step up? Do we call out for someone else to come alongside us and help us, someone who's been more successful in this area and we want to emulate them? Do we call out by going to Google and searching quietly for things that we think may, think may help us and hoping that people never know that we didn't know it in the first place? Like, how are we trying to fill our knowledge gap? Who are we calling out to? Like, when we come to the end of ourselves, do we realize that we were designed as finite beings and it's actually a, an expression of worship and a place of rest and know, oh, I'm at the end of myself and there's some place I can go. The fool never calls out to God. Our foolish cycles lead us not towards God but away from him. And so we need to look and see what are we calling out to. And the sobering reality of this tragic story, as I said before, is it's our story too. Verses 1 and verses 3. At the end of verse 1, David says, there's no one who does good. At the end of verse 3, he says, there's no one who does good, not even one. If you've been reading the New Testament over the last couple of years with us, then you're like, that sounds vaguely familiar, but not from the Psalms. It's because Paul references this Psalm in Romans. Paul talks to us about that, which we'll look at in just a moment. But the meaning of this is that the tragic story of foolishness is every single person's tragic story. We all start from this place. This is our story. We take a life that's full of intimacy with the Lord, which can be kind of pictured in walking with God in the garden, and we trade it in for a life of foolishness, a life that instead sees us pursuing self-interest but experiencing shame and fear. We've all made a really bad deal. We all start in that place, a place of foolishness. And so if this story is a story for each of us, then we can have compassion for one another when we see cycles of foolishness in one another. But we can also have compassion for those who don't know the Lord Jesus and don't know any other way other than the way of foolishness. Because unless the Spirit does a work in you, foolishness is going to be your default setting. Only through the gospel does foolishness stop being our default setting. 
And you can think of it this way. If you don't know Jesus, the theme of your story is foolishness. If you do know Jesus, the theme of your story is love. But you and I interject chapters of foolishness into that story. We all struggle with foolishness. It's just a matter of has Jesus pulled us out of that and not made it the theme of our story? Or are we still living in a story that is a story of foolishness? That is the sort of the gospel, uh, the gospel watershed, if you will, which is what I want to talk about now. Our hope is the gospel. Verses 1 and 3 tell us it's everyone's story. No one does good, not even one. So unless the, the gospel grabs hold of us, that's the whole story. The human experience is one of, of enslavement to our sin, enslavement to our foolish hearts and our desires, which is why we feel beset by corruption. We feel like corruption is pressing in on us or emanating out of us. Like we feel corruption. We're haunted by our ab abominable deeds. We don't tell anyone about them, but we're haunted by them. We know them. And we act out in oppressive and manipulative ways because we're trying to assert control over our lives and trying to rewrite our story. Like all of us experience this. And there are times when we're paralyzed by our fears. Foolishness has been a part of our story, and unless we know Jesus, it is the theme of our story. And we feel it if we're honest with ourselves. I have a friend that I was talking to this week, and he was reflecting on his life. And honestly, he, he was reflecting on just kind of the shambles of his life. He no longer has a relationship with his daughter or the mother of his daughter. He's burned pretty much all the bridges with people who loved him and cared about him. And he's looking around, and he's realizing that he has nothing, that everything that mattered to him, he has made a mess of. He's estranged himself from everyone and he's in his 20s. And that would be a moment when you would expect just despair. But as I was talking to him, he was sharing with that, that with me to say that for the first time, though, he's beginning to experience hope because someone shared the gospel with him. He's realizing there is hope for his broken story. And so his prayer, he's just asked me to pray that he would actually be able to have a relationship with his daughter, who's three, three years old, and that there would be restoration in his relationship with the people that he burned over the last handful of years. He has the hope of the gospel. We're told that in the gospel that our foolish story, which has created a tragic story for each of us, can be rewritten. That story can be taken from us and a new story can be given. Romans 3, 23 through 26, which I referenced a moment ago, tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's how Paul interprets when he quotes this psalm. This is everyone's story. But the hope for us is that we can be justified by grace, that God can rewrite our story and longs to and will rewrite our story and redeem us through Jesus. And we're told he does that because he's both just and he desires to be our justifier. Meaning he will deal with all of our abominable deeds, all of our corruption, all of our manipulation, all of our oppression. But he will put that on Jesus and pay for it. So that our story, Jesus will take our story, and he has taken our story, and paid for it on the cross, and given us a new story. So our hope isn't that we're not fools. That's not our hope. The truth is we are hope is that fools can be redeemed fools can be rescued and changed and that's what the gospel offers us a hope of pursuing love of Jesus who saw us in our foolishness and came after us and set his affection on us which means that my treason when I live like there is no God 
my corruption, my abominable deeds, the times I oppress, the times I manipulate others for the sake of myself, all of that has already been punished. All of that has already been atoned for. And when God looks at me, he doesn't see the foolish rebel. He sees a beloved son. That's how the gospel changes our story. And the only hope for us when we feel the estrangement of our foolish cycles is to know that this is the truth. If you've, if you've asked Jesus to rescue you from your sins, this is your story. The chapter right now is a chapter of your waywardness, not of his lack of faithfulness. You can come out of that chapter. And if your story's never been changed, the offer's fresh for you this morning, that your story can be changed. The gospel's good news that radically reshapes our stories. It brings, instead of themes of foolishness and estrangement from God, of lack of intimacy with God, we start seeing what David talks about here, and we start seeing, I have a refuge. We see themes of, of refuge and salvation and restoration and rejoicing. These are all things David talks about here in Psalm 14. Those themes are offered to us. Themes of refuge and restoration, themes of salvation and rejoicing. Don't we long for those themes in our story? Now, I want to spend the last few minutes that we have talking about our restored story. Because whenever you look at the scriptures and you see kind of negative prohibitions, or you see, well, I guess prohibitions are always negative, but when you see God essentially saying, hey, this is wrong, don't live like this, if you look at the negative space that's left, it's an invitation to a different way of life. When God says this is not for your good, you can actually begin to see what is for your best. And so I want us to take a look at this psalm and see what we're being called into, what we're being invited into, a life where we enjoy intimacy with God, where our life, the theme of our life is actually much more like walking with God in the garden instead of hiding from him in shame. David focuses on calling out foolish hearts, and, but when we look at it, there's still a beautiful picture of what we're invited into here, a life of that active intimacy with God. You know, if you look at, at verse 5 with me, we're told that God has a generation of the righteous. Once you've been redeemed, you're moved from the foolish life cycle into the life of the redeemed, into the life of the righteous. And that's a life where, verse 4, it means that we are actually those who can have knowledge of God. We can have knowledge of him and knowledge of ourselves. We can actually know ourselves and our own limitations. And we can actually know his heart and the things that he loves. And we can also, as it says in verse 4, we can begin to call out to him. And we can have a relationship where they, we know there's some place that we can go and we actively go and lean into that relationship. In verse 2, we can see and understand who God is and, and what he loves and who we are and what our struggles are. And we can also see that we're invited into a relationship, a relationship by one who wants us to seek, a, seek him. Oftentimes we read things like this and we think, all right, yeah, i got to go after God. Well, God's already come after us. We've already been sought. We've already been found. The kind of seeking we're talking about here is turning and enjoying. You don't have to go find God. He's already pursued you. The question is, are you going to turn around and spend time with him? Are you going to enjoy that relationship with him? Because that's what you and I are offered. We talk a lot here at FBO about, hey, you should do the FBO Bible reading plan with us. And it's not because we buy so many bookmarks and we want to be good stewards of the bookmarks, though we do, for sure. It's because the way that you enjoy seeking God and understanding him and growing in your knowledge of him and knowing how to call out to him is you spend time with him. And what that is is just basic 
spiritual practices. If we read our Bible not so that we can be more knowledgeable about the Bible, Bible trivia is actually not super useful for you. Meeting with God and hearing from him in the word, that's incredibly useful for you. We read the Bible, we, we encourage you to jump into the Bible because Bible reading is meant for relationship. If you can't give me an outline of Romans, that's okay. But when you read Romans, are you hearing God speak into your life? Is it shaping you? Your prayer life, like the spiritual discipline of, of prayer, it's, it's conversation. It's relational intimacy. Are you actually meeting with God and, and praying to him? Are you calling out to him? Are you seeking him? Are you asking him questions? Are you celebrating him? Are you telling him what's hard in your life and what you're frustrated about? It's therapeutic, and it's been designed by God to be therapeutic to be able to go to God and share your heart with him. It actually changes us. These spiritual practices, the practice of meditation, think about the people that you love. You think about them when they're not around, right? Think about God. That's meditation. Think about the relationship that you have with him. These are those spiritual practices. And I just want to say one more thing about this. I think we struggle, and I know myself, not all of you are like me, thank goodness for the world, but I struggle with actually just embracing the fact that the spiritual reality of my life is a reality. Like I'm a spiritual being, which means there is something mystical about my existence that cannot be quantified, but can be experienced. I think sometimes you and I, as Reformed Christians, we look and we see folks of other denominations and even other faiths. And we're like, that is so spiritual and it's so attractive to me and it makes me uncomfortable at the same time. We have to allow ourselves to be spiritual. Spiritual disciplines don't actually encourage our hearts if all they are are disciplines. The discipline is to deepen our spiritual existence, our spiritual reality, our spiritual life. Not just a discipline that's labeled as spiritual. So if Bible reading and prayer are just actually functional things that you do and not expressions of your spiritual reality, then we need to start there. You and I will not become spiritually healthy if we're not willing to acknowledge that we are spiritual beings. And I may just be preaching to myself on that, but I doubt it because you're at a Reformed Presbyterian church. And we have, we have our blinders. We have our veers. And the veer away from mysticism and spirituality is one that most of us have. Do we need to be careful in those areas? Absolutely. Are we being too careful in those areas? I would say absolutely. There's a spiritual, there's spiritual component to our lives that is rich, that can be rich. And it's where we feel intimacy. I know we long for it. Let's actually go to the places that God says he'll meet us. And let's experience it. I want to wrap us up this morning with just asking you a diagnostic question. Like, where is foolishness slipping back into your story? Where is that cycle for you? Where do you feel relationally? Like, do you feel relationally estranged from the Lord? If so, something is broken right now. Something is off right now. There is a foolishness in your existence right now, in your story right now. Let's root it out. And if you've never wrestled with this, I would encourage you to email me this week or email Josh or email James or anyone, actually anyone who has their email in the back of the worship folder. Good option. Reach out to one of us. Like we want to talk to you about your story and we would love to tell you about ours. The gospel does amazing things 
It takes foolish people and makes us a generation of the righteous. It frees us from things that we have allowed to enslave us for so long, and it brings us close to the one who will never leave us and never forsake us. That's the story that we all long for. Lord Jesus, thanks so much for this opportunity to think on these things together this morning, to wrestle with what it means to to be a spiritual being and to know that our foolish life cycle, our foolish our foolish bents actually pull us away from that relationship that you designed us for. It's humbling for us to know that when you look at the things that we do and that we say, the things that we think, that you rightly label them as corrupt and abominable. Those are words we do not like, but they help us to understand that what we're doing is more foolish than we're willing to acknowledge. And so we thank you that you grab us by the collar because you love us. I pray for us this morning as a family that you will grab us and remind us that you have rewritten our story. And for those of us who do not know you, Lord Jesus, I pray that you will grab us by the Spirit and tell us that there's a better story and you offer it to us. I pray for intimacy with you, for each and every one of us. I pray that you will help us to lean into the fact that we are spirit and that what you offer us is rich and real. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.